when you come across something and you're like, I call it like the whoa feeling, like, whoa, I haven't seen that. Like, wait, what? Then that's actually one of your red flags to check. Hold on, what's the source? And here's one way in which Facebook's a nightmare because something from the New York Times can look very similar to something from a nonsense website. It makes it difficult to do not just what I call fact checking, but source checking. That's Dr. Seema Yasmin, an Emmy award-winning journalist, poet, medical doctor, and author. Dr. Yasmin served as an officer in the Epidemic Intelligence Service at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, where she investigated disease outbreaks and was principal investigator on a number of CDC studies. As an author, Yasmin has a history of tackling some of the most challenging global crises of our time. Her first book, The Impatient Dr. Lang, charts the course of the HIV AIDS pandemic and the life of a scientist who fought to end the outbreak. Her second book, Debunked, dissects medical myths and pseudoscience, exploring why we believe what we believe. It is therefore no surprise that Dr. Yasmin is now a trusted voice during the pandemic, helping debunk myths and misinformation about the coronavirus. So when you get that woe feeling, like, I don't think anyone's seen this in my circle, what happens is you have an emotional incentive to share that information because you get status and hierarchy points. I'm going to be the one among my circle to share this new piece of information. So watch out for that. Check if other sources have also been sharing this piece of news. It may be legitimate, but it's also a red flag that it very well may not be. I'm Justin Beck, founder and CEO of Contact World. I'm here with my co-hosts, Catherine Delson and Deepti Pava. And over the coming months, we'll be talking to scientists, researchers, celebrities, experts, anyone who's been affected by COVID, and getting to the bottom of how we can improve public health together. We may not have all the answers, but you deserve to understand what goes on in your neighborhood and the decisions that will affect you and your family's health. Welcome back, everyone, to Contact World Truth and Health. So we're going to spend some more time talking about the threat of misinformation today with a few different takes on it. We've previously talked about how misinformation threatens vaccination and the anti-vaxxer movement actually threatens our entire country. Today, Deepti and Catherine, I wanted to talk about a little more on social media and since it plays such a huge role in the lives of so many Americans. So have you guys seen The Social Dilemma? Yes, I have. So it makes me think of Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park. So he says that the scientists, when talking about genetically engineering things, they spent so much time preoccupied with whether or not they could do it that they didn't stop to think if they should do it. And where we are today as a country, and when we talk about the way that misinformation spreads, it's amazing to think about what might happen if the social media networks actually use their power to change behavior in a way that was good. Imagine if that was used to improve climate change. I think they do in some respect. We just don't hear as much about it. <laughs> I don't think those stories are clickable as much. People are not sharing the button when somebody's trying to do something as positive. Whereas if it's something inflammatory, people are more likely to, to click on those. And you know, the funny thing, Justin, that you mentioned is I've noticed that even with the cooking videos, which I love to watch on Facebook, yeah. the comments are becoming so toxic. It's almost to the point where you want to say, if you don't like something, Walk away from it. Why are you writing something negative about something that someone else is doing? Right. And Catherine, I mean, 
what you're bringing in is very correct. But at the same time, what Justin brought in is about social dilemma. And, you know, there's a reason why that documentary was formed, because they wanted to inform consumers and users about how they're being persuaded every single day into doing things that may not be beneficial for them, but for the companies that are operating them. I mean, linking to that, there is another initiative which is run by the same people, which is known as the Center of Humane Technology. Mm -hmm. And these guys regularly host conversations with experts and advocates at the intersection of social media and mental health, misinformation, also democracy and so much more that these guys talk about. So, I mean, there is a movement now in a way where people really think about these humane aspects of technology, social media, how the same tools that have once been used to misinform, the same techniques can actually be used for social good. And, and that's, that's happening right now in real time as we speak. It's good to hear that, Deepti. I know you're really connected in the Silicon Valley, in the Stanford community, etc. So I really hope, though, that we have a reckoning as a country. We need to move toward more social impact and equity because we have to be honest about you know, how we got here. And the reason that Facebook and Twitter operate the way that they do, for instance, is because it's not the job of a company to save people or help people. The job of a company traditionally is just to make money. And we have to disrupt the way that companies operate. You can make money and make a commitment to advancing historical inequities. I think it's brewing because there's, you know, social and corporate responsibility. A lot of the larger companies have those initiatives, you right. know, if and if it's diversity, inclusion and other programs, how successful they are, that remains to be seen. But it's there. The conversations are brewing. It's just a matter of time before it catches on and it's more exposed. And you talk about corporate social responsibility, which has taken a step further now, which is known as digital social responsibility, which is really, you know, how corporate responsibility lies in the digital era. And it actually spans a lot of areas like social, economic, technological environment. And when designing for systems, when designing for technology, are they looking into some simple facts like privacy by design? All of these things are also part of digital responsibility, not just what we talk about in terms of misinformation, as you say. Right. Also, a big charge if we're talking about COVID-19 and everything else with this pandemic, a lot has to do with our states and our local governments. They're in a position I believe, of power in terms of having the channels where people would believe if it came from the White House that it is true, right? If it's from President Biden, if it's from the vice president, it must be accurate. If we set up the channels so that they disseminate to the lower states or local levels, then it makes it more likely that people would believe, regardless of whether you're disenfranchised, most people, I think if we took a poll right now, if something is said to be from the White House, right. they would believe it. You're absolutely right, because that's part of the reason we're in the position we're in today is that we lacked federal coordination on so many things. And there was so much misinformation coming from our leadership that it created 
havoc, to say the least. I will say something that's encouraging about equity. I'm glad to see that they're actually starting to really disrupt the way they think of vaccine distribution. Now, we still have a big role to play where we need to educate the public, and especially in ways that they understand and consume information about vaccines. But I really like how the Biden administration is now creating ways that they send vaccines directly to hard-hit communities. Specifically, their first phase is going to the pharmacies in hard-hit jurisdictions that have been adversely affected or disproportionately affected. And now they've taken that one step further and they're going directly to community centers, which are typically very trusted messaging centers for hard-hit populations and local communities. So I think that we're finally seeing a little bit of innovation at that level. Innovation and also success. I was reading earlier today that they're averaging about 1.5 million shots a day, which means we're on track to meet the goal of 100 million coronavirus shots for the first 100 days of presidency. I mean, to me, that's amazing. I mean, I heard that number and I thought, okay, uh, we'll see how that works. But they're really putting their boots on the ground and, and actually making it happen. So Deep Sea, from misinformation to distress. I guess we switched lane a little bit. We go to a different story, what I felt was a heartfelt story about Kamoy Campbell. Can you tell us a little bit about that interview? Yeah. Kimoy Campbell is a retired Jamaican distance runner who competed in various events from 800 meters to 5,000 meters and also participated in 2016 Olympics in Brazil. And in February 2019, he went into a cardiac arrest while pacing the men's 3,000-meter race at Milrose Games. He just passed out on the track. And while doctors were unable to determine exactly what caused his collapse, they concluded that it was most likely a virus that he had that he never took care of. And if he pushed his heart rate harder than 164 beats per minute, he ran the risk of another collapse and also possibly death. And now during the pandemic, he's trying to really warn athletes and educate athletes on the consequences of not taking enough rest or not listening to your body. Hi, Kimoy. We are excited to have you on our show today. So for what I know of you and what I've read, you were a shy boy from a rural region in Jamaica. And from there to becoming an athlete and a distance runner and then competing in 2016 Olympics in Brazil, quite an inspiring story, I have to say. So share with us a little bit about your journey and how you got there. So I started when I was 16 years old and I started by accident. We had a field day at school and my music teacher decided, hey, we need some points for our house. Can you go out there in the 5K and run? I didn't know how much laps the 5K was. So when I got onto the start line, I asked math teacher that's starting the race, like how much laps is the 5K? And he told me 12. I wanted to walk off because I didn't think I could run 12 laps. But then I ended up doing really well, finishing third and beating half the track team that was already training for the sport. So... My journey started from there and from there I just worked hard and I set small goals, I would say. My first goal was to become the best in Jamaica. Then my other goal was to get a sponsorship to come to college. And then from 
college to get a sponsorship to race professionally. So February 9th, 2019, Melrose Games. I'm certain you remember the date by heart. I do. It's a very scary time in my life. I would say it definitely changed my life forever. And I'll always remember that day, even though I would have to say I remember part of the day, actually. Right. I mean, you collapsed shortly after stepping off the track while pacing during the men's 3000 meters, right? Do you remember something about the day itself? So um, what I remember is I got up in the morning. I got on the bus. I was talking to one of my friends um, who's also an athlete. And from there on, I don't remember even getting to the track. I don't remember warming up. I don't remember anything. I don't remember the race. It's like that they had completely been wiped away. So do you want to also talk a little bit about what exactly it was? What were you diagnosed with? So it was a very hard time because while I was in the hospital, they had countless doctors from different specialty trying to look into what could cause it. And at the time, no one could give me an answer. Like, it was insane. The only idea they had was, because I was pretty sick leading up to that race, I had the flu or something. I remember coughing a lot. I remember a um, few, like, of my muscles had pain and stuff. And then I was in a road race in Manchester, Connecticut, and I had to drop out because I couldn't breathe. I went to see a doctor in Charlottesville and they told me like they can't differentiate if it's my lungs or my heart. So I should go see a specialist. While I was in the hospital, they told me they think it could have been a virus. And I was running and training with this virus and it might have traveled to my heart. So they're thinking that's most likely what happened because they've seen it happen to other people before. And this experience was, of course, before COVID happened. This was pre-COVID. What was your reaction to such a profound consequence of the flu when you initially began dealing with this? Like, could you imagine this was just the flu that eventually led to something so serious? It was kind of strange because when you think of the flu, you think you get some chicken soup, you lay in bed and you sweat the fever out and then the flu slowly goes away. For me, I was always the type of athlete who would think running would solve everything. You put on some clothes, you go run and you'll be fine. When they told me that the flu could do this to people, from there on, I realized the mistake that I made. I wasn't listening to my body. And sometimes you really do have to listen to your body because it knows best. And I've been doing it for years, running with the flu, running with the flu. So it could have been years that I was just sending the virus to my heart and it just slowly ate away over time. So it was very scary. Right. And what were long-term outcomes of this on your illness, your health, as well as your career? I mean, obviously I'm not a professional athlete anymore. I really do miss it, but I would say it has opened my eyes in many other ways. You don't realize how much freedom you have until there's something prevent you from doing what you want to do. For instance, like this morning, the alarm, fire alarm went off. It was a false alarm, but at the same time, it kind of opened my mind. This is the 30th floor. The last time I did two flights of stairs, I had an arrhythmia right after that. So now how am I supposed to climb 30 floors down 
what's going to happen to me? So this kind of just opened my mind. And then I realized that there are consequences. Right. I mean, just relating to your situation, which was flu symptoms now, COVID and coronavirus. I mean, it's just even more dangerous as we know it. Do you have any thoughts to offer to athletes who may find themselves with a COVID-19 diagnosis? I think the best thing an athlete can do if they do find themselves is rest. If you go out and run while you have COVID, it's going to cause problems. I knew an athlete who did the same thing because she had mild symptoms and now she has a heart condition. They didn't know if she had it previously, but now it's showing up. Yesterday, I got a message from her saying she got shot by her ICD for the first time yesterday. Your whole life changes. I'm taking anxiety medication right now just because I had 12 arrhythmias last week, Thursday. 12. And every single time I move, I get shocked. It's just this constant battle thinking, oh, yes, you're okay, you're okay. But this could happen. Not only athletes, regular people don't want to have to deal with that either because it's not very nice. On another level, you are retired at 28 because of your heart condition and the flu contributed to it. I mean, could have been one of the reasons. Has your experience contributed to any sort of culture change among athletes and how they're dealing with this pandemic? Do you see that being talked about? I really don't. At the beginning, when the incident happened, obviously like, I was advocating for heart health and people knowing CPR because that's what initially saved my life. But then COVID happened. So I've gone on my Instagram and I've talked to people about athletes. I've mentioned, hey, you don't want to end up like me. But at the same time, this is how they make their money. They're not thinking about what could happen to them. You're thinking about how can I get paid? How can I keep my sponsorship? But I really do try to educate people about this because they don't really know what the consequences are for going out and competing with viruses in their body. The coronavirus pandemic halted sports across the globe in March, but live sports is gradually resuming with strict health protocols, of course, in place. And even though it's not running, I just want to take your view on that. The Tampa area is hosting Super Bowl and Raymond James Stadium not only is the site for Super Bowl 55, but also a symbol of coronavirus pandemic that has killed more than 440,000 Americans. Close to 70 players decided not to play the season and more than 250 players have tested positive for COVID-19. And long-term effects of COVID on players, like you were saying, they're not even known to people, you know, even after they recover, what would happen? What's your take on that? So I, I live in Miami, right? And People really don't care here. That's just the bottom line. I've gone out and walks, like before I started having my arrhythmias and stuff, I've been going out and walks. 95% of the people I pass isn't wearing a mask. And to me, that's one of the scariest things. So I just decided, hey, I'm just gonna start wearing two masks because people are running past, you're breathing heavily. You don't know if they have COVID. You don't know who out there has it. And yet these people aren't wearing any masks at all. I know it's going to be terrible down here. So I'll probably just stay in my apartment, make sure I wear my mat, two masks when I'm going out, try to be as safe as possible. And then hopefully things calm down after that. Besides the sports itself, has the pandemic changed how you've been able to engage with your own recovery? 
I mean, in terms of the medical resources being so taxed and overwhelmed right now? I mean, it's been a little bit tougher because I used to be able to go in and see my um, cardiologist. Now, sometimes we have televisits. That's still a great resource. But at the same time, like if they want to check my blood pressure and see what's really going on, they can't do that. So now I have to adapt where I got a heart rate monitor to tell me like pulse. Then I have to buy a blood pressure monitor. They're pretty good about it where if they see that I'm really stressing out about something and I don't feel right, I can go in. Recently, as I was in the hospital, like a couple of days ago, I do realize that in the hospital, they're trying their best to prevent people from catching the virus by limiting the amount of people that comes in to see you. And I kind of like that. But at the same time, there's that thing in the back of your head, like the doctors have seen other patients, these kind of spread thin. I heard someone cough down the hall and all of a sudden I start freaking out because I don't really know what's going on with that person. So yeah, it's very scary. In a way, televisits are good as well. I mean, at least we are innovating there. But of course, the resources are pretty thin right now, for sure. Do you have any last thoughts for your fellow athletes? I mean, you already mentioned quite a few things, but still, you know, recovering from the situation, your own situation and whatever you're going through. And what would be your thoughts and what would you like to give a message to your fellow athletes at this point in time? So I would say to them, if you're sick, you cannot run. If you cannot run, you're not going to be able to make money. Your sponsor is going to cut you anyway. So the best thing they can do is play it safe. At least you have your health coming out of it. You don't have to be like me where you're worrying. You get up to go to the bathroom and you have an arrhythmia. That's not a way of life. It's just terrifying. So for them, I'll just say be safe. If you're not feeling well, Get it checked out immediately. You saw what happened to me. So why aren't you taking that as a precaution to make sure it doesn't happen to you? So what you're saying is choose better against the best. Yeah. Kimoy, uh, from the moment you started competing in track, your life is all about goals. I mean, college scholarship, then corporate sponsorship, and then Olympics. And I read about you that you've again used your goals to expedite your recovery as well, right? So we are looking forward to hearing more on you and where you make your name next. So best of luck and thank you. Thank you so much. What a fascinating and cautionary story. Having lived the reality firsthand, Kimoy understands the seriousness and gravity of a viral infection and how it can be a matter of life or death. I had the fortune of speaking to Dr. Yasmin, who certainly understands how dangerous it can be when the public won't listen to facts or the stories they're presented, instead trusting the BS, as she calls it. Hi, Seema. appreciate your time today. So we live in an age of misinformation. What effect has misinformation played in the trajectory of the pandemic in the United States? 
I think quite literally we've seen disease and death perhaps linked to the spread of misinformation and disinformation where people have succumbed to conspiracy theories about the spread, the prevention, the transmission of COVID-19. And now, of course, that we are in the era of COVID vaccines, there are people perhaps either refusing to or very much on the fence about vaccines. So I think we're living in both a pandemic, but also a misinfodemic concurrently in that there's an epidemic of misinformation and disinformation, and it has very significant impacts on people's health and on public health overall. I think a lot of people would benefit from a bullshit detection kit like the one that's in your book. Can you tell us about Viral BS published by our friends at Johns Hopkins University Press? Yeah, so this book is coming out now in the second year of the pandemic and people have been saying, oh, it's such great timing. But I've been working on this book for the last six years and it began as a newspaper column when I was a reporter at the Dallas Morning News and I was covering health and science and doing breaking news stories and feature stories. But at the same time, I would get lots and lots of questions from people about things about health and science that weren't necessarily in the news, whether it was questions about chemtrails or if it was questions about vaccines and autism, whether they should be taking a cholesterol-lowering drug, statins, e-cigarettes. So there's a lot of uncertainty out there. And my book doesn't always provide an absolutely black and white answer because welcome to the world that we live in. So really what the book is doing is helping people, I hope, become savvier in terms of separating good evidence from not so great evidence and kind of figuring out when it is that a study can talk about causation versus correlation, how it is that a study might end up with quite misleading headlines in newspapers and websites. So the book tackles more than 40 myths and truths about health and science, everything from Tuskegee experiments and if you can call them experiments and how those impact our public health now to diet sodas and links to Alzheimer's. What do you think the craziest or most frustrating myth you tackle might be? Gosh, it's really hard to pick one because I think there's something in the book for everyone. And so there's one chapter about should you eat your baby's placenta after you have a baby, which may not interest everyone. But certainly that was a question I got a lot over the years because some celebrities were really swearing by it, saying that they had eaten their placenta after they'd given birth and it had improved their skin and made breastfeeding easier and cured postpartum depression, all this stuff of which there was no medical backing, right? And I was just so worried that people would see their favorite celebs and their favorite Instagram influencers talking about this nonsense and then go and do it. And of course, that's what we saw. And in the book, I talk about this really awful incident and there are more out there, but a baby who becomes very sick has to go to the hospital because the mum ate the placenta after she delivered the baby. And there was a bacteria in the placenta, which can sometimes go unmissed, which is one of the reasons why you shouldn't eat it. And the doctors were so perplexed. Why was the baby so sick? Why did it need so much antibiotics? Like, where did this infection come from? And then when the mum said, well, actually, I had my placenta turned into these freeze-dried capsules, then it made sense that she had consumed the bacteria, not gotten sick herself, but passed the infection onto her newborn. But I think the interesting thing about that and the other myths is where do they even come from and why do we believe them even when people give us evidence to the counter? And why is it that we hold on to particular beliefs about health and science? So the book really gets to that, like what even is a fact? How are facts made? Should we trust the people who make facts? Because that, you know, it starts to get messy. 
Sure. You talked about something that's pretty touchy and it's kind of relevant for right now, especially as it comes to vaccine administration in the U.S. Uh, you mentioned the Tuskegee experiments. How do we overcome some of you know the things that might actually have underlying truths during the pandemic? And how do we sort of restore trust in certain populations for vaccination? So what's happening now is a lot of the onus is being put on individuals and communities. And we're even hearing these really false blanket statements that so many black people are vaccine hesitant or so many indigenous people or Asian people as if we are all monolithic. And of course, our communities are not. What I think is happening when people are speaking to those issues that affect all communities is that there are particular populations that have been experimented on in recent history. So Tuskegee, for anyone who's not aware, there's an experiment, a study conducted by U.S. government doctors and nurses that went on from 1932 and only ended in 1972 after a whistleblower said, like, this is terrible. Basically, it was a few hundred poor black sharecroppers in Alabama who had syphilis and were not told what was wrong with them. They were told they had bad blood. And even once a cure for syphilis came along, these men were not given that cure. So they were left to suffer so that these U.S. government doctors could understand understand what syphilis does to the body. And of course, those men became very sick. You know, eventually syphilis attacks your brain. They also passed the infection onto their spouses and partners, and some of their partners had babies born with congenital syphilis. So I'm reassured the Tuskegee study is coming back up now, because I think just actually a lot of people haven't come across it, haven't learned it. Many, of course, have. But the problem then is just talking about Tuskegee, just talking about historical precedents for distrust in science, medicine, and public health, when medical racism is very much a modern day problem, right? There are studies from just a year, two, three years ago about the magical beliefs that white medical students and white doctors hold about black people and black people's health. So those things are complicated. They combine to give some communities legitimate reasons to distrust the establishment. So you're asking about how to build trust, especially in the context of a pandemic when science is moving fast and things are evolving uh, and there's so much information out there. I think we have to, in medicine and public health and in science, have an atonement for past mistakes and past atrocities. And you know, I'm a journalist as well, and I work a lot around diversity and inclusion in newsrooms because it's an issue very close to my heart and that's affected me. And in recent years, we've seen Nat Geo, the Los Angeles Times, and one other local paper kind of say, this is the role that we played in upholding white supremacy over the last century, over the last decades. And here's how we covered things like lynchings, and here's how we may have perpetuated this problem. And that's a good first step. It's very much the beginning of a process, but we need to do that in medicine instead of, you know, naming our medical school lecture theatres and our experiments and even body parts and cells and procedures after eugenicists and after fascists who happen to be doctors and scientists, right? Think about John Sims, who is credited with inventing the speculum and some quite common obstetric and gynecological surgical procedures. He came to that knowledge by experimenting on enslaved black women without giving those women anesthesia. That's our history. And unless we atone for that, I find it egregious and naive and ridiculous. We would say to other people, it's an emergency, roll up your sleeve, get this shot. You should trust us. And it's like, actually, some people have reason not to. And so you better build those relationships and do that work, acknowledge, atone, collaborate, empower. And that's how you can start to rebuild trust. 
I think those are just such solid points as yet to be honest about how we got here. How do you think the prior administration's mismanagement or what many people would say mismanagement of the pandemic impacted credibility of public health officials? Oh, gosh, we could talk for hours about that. I think there are going to be PhD dissertations and books on this topic. I even just think about very a focused way of answering that question is to look at how that administration impacted the FDA. And I think there was so much political pressure put on what should be, you know, a kind of independent scientific agency that is supposed to be kind of independent of political pressure. And what we saw was the president tweeting at the agency's director. And then we saw rushed, in my opinion, emergency use authorizations for some treatments. And then we saw those EUAs, which in my opinion were rushed, be revoked because, you know, there wasn't sufficient evidence at the beginning, I don't think, to issue those authorizations. That can do so much damage, right? That can really hurt, especially when that same agency is the one that will issue emergency use authorizations for COVID-19 vaccines like hello. So that needs to be rebuilt. And just in terms of the past administration and misinformation, you know, there was that study at Cornell University last year where the researchers analyzed 38 million English language articles about COVID-19 and found that the single biggest source of misinformation about the pandemic in the U.S. was Donald Trump. And that has hurt us, that the, the misinformation and disinformation was coming from such a high platform. There's a journalistic conversation to be had about how much attention was given and how long the camera stayed on those press conferences where bleach was being touted by the then president. So all of that has really hurt the pandemic response and continues to hurt us. It's really a tragedy that public health officials lost any credibility for something that really they were muzzled. In a lot of cases, like the CDC, a lot of information was you know, somehow siloed and contained. How do we undo the damage from the prior administration? It's a process. The damage is still happening and unfolding. You just think about how many dozens of public health workers faced death threats, faced threats of violence and actually stepped away from their jobs, either took early retirements or just flat out moved away from their positions because they were being attacked, because either they were endorsing lockdowns, they were encouraging people not to gather, to wear masks. That's going to have a long standing impact. It could work both ways. We saw what we're calling like the Fauci bump last year in terms of the increased number of applications to medical school, which is like, oh, amazing, restores your faith in humanity when you see how badly doctors and frontline workers have been treated. And yet you see a new generation of young people being like, I'm going to sign up for that. Pretty incredible. But to answer your question, it's very much a process and it's going to have to be a really deliberate, thoughtful and careful process, I think, in understanding how the damage was done and not just how we repair it, but how do we really strengthen systems, strengthen trust? How do we bring disenfranchised communities into the fold of public health? And how do we teach science literacy better? Because that's one of the things we've really been grappling with, with this pandemic. It's not just explaining the emerging science of a novel pathogen. One example is Dr. Fauci early in 2020 when he was saying you don't necessarily need to wear a mask. And then the next month, I think in late Feb or March, was saying you do. And he came under attack. One of the attacks was, oh, the scientists don't know what they're doing. And he changes his mind. And it was like, okay, so this is a reminder that for many people, they're not understanding it's part of the scientific process, that he's being a good, credible, legitimate scientist by evaluating the data and changing his mind and reassessing 
assessing. So that is also something that will need to be part of that process moving forward. Just speculating, I feel like part of that was also making sure there wasn't a rush on masks so that they were available in clinical settings. Oh, it was. There was a whole political context to it too. There was a shortage. There remains a shortage of N95 respirators in the US. So there was political and cultural context, but there also was. He was assessing data as it was coming in from other countries and therefore he reassessed and offered new guidance based on that best available evidence. And that to people seemed like bad science when actually it was science. That is the scientific process. Yeah, you have to change with the information you have. How do we separate politics from public health decision making, especially in conservative jurisdictions because of how politics play out? I don't think you can completely extricate the politics from it. I wrote an op-ed for the New York Times early last year, kind of reflecting on my time at the CDC and the Epidemic Intelligence Service and how every single epidemic that I was deployed to contain or investigate was political, small p political, it's bureaucratic. You wouldn't think that when you arrive anywhere to deal with an outbreak of flesh-eating bacteria, for example, that bureaucracy will limit your opportunities to stop the spread of this deadly bacteria, but it really will. There are layers to it. This is a thing that's been written about and discussed for so many years, especially after the beginnings of the HIV AIDS pandemic. And we saw how that was mismanaged in the US and how the CDC was muzzled and how the then administration kind of really mismanaged that. Took years to even really talk about it from the president at the time. So it's something we're going to have to think about, not necessarily completely extricating the politics. I just think public health is inherently political. None of these things happen in isolation or in a vacuum away from the messy cultural, political, you know, all those circumstances that we live within. I think it's much more about having systems of accountability, having equity and diversity within the sciences, within public health. That's a frustration with sometimes, you know, diversity, inclusion and equity being talked about as this like buzzword. And it's like, no, we're talking about it because it has real value you having those diverse workforces and diverse perspectives at the table can really protect us in terms of our public health moving forward. Absolutely. What basic things should we keep in mind to do a better job of sharing and understanding health-related information? You know, some people as communicators, but like people that are posting on Facebook, you know, how do we be more mindful of the information that we share? Facebook's such a nightmare and quite a few of these social media platforms are because their algorithms literally incentivize engagement with nonsense. And they know it. They have a lot of work to do and they've been told what to fix and, you know, we're just not seeing it. It's almost like the success from their perspective of the platforms necessitates us being like emotionally triggered and sharing things that are often inaccurate. There was a study in 2018 that came out of MIT and it was a study about the spread of false information and the kind of headlines generated from that study, if you remember, were something like false information travels faster and farther than the truth. And so they'd done this analysis. It was really good, but it also made you feel a lot of despair because you just think, wait, what? Why do the lies travel farther and faster? Like, do we even have any hope of countering this? But actually, when you look more, I think the most interesting part of their study was why and what was it about false information that made it go viral. And I think when you kind of reverse engineer it that way, you can look for red flags like, oh, this is the thing that often makes something false go viral. Let me look out for these things. And one or two of those things I'll quickly talk about. One of them was this notion of novel information that when you come across something and you're like, I call it like the whoa feeling like, whoa, I haven't seen that. Like, wait, what? Then that's actually one of your red flags to check hold on, what's the source? And here's one way in which Facebook's a nightmare because something from the New York Times can look very similar to something from a nonsense website. Not to say the New York Times is flawless and perfect, but you know what I mean? Like it makes it difficult to do not just what I call fact checking, but source checking. So when you get that woe feeling like, I don't think anyone's seen this in my circle, 
What happens is you have an emotional incentive to share that information because you get status and hierarchy points. I'm going to be the one among my circle to share this new piece of information. So watch out for that. Check if other sources have also been sharing this piece of news. It may be legitimate, but it's also a red flag that it very well may not be. And the other thing to bear in mind that these researchers and others have found as well is like the emotional content of material. So often the false information, maybe from the anti-science brigade or people who are anti-vaccine, it really triggers emotions of disgust or hate or anger and those messages when we've done analyses on Twitter as well those tweets that even have words like disgusted I am so angry they're the ones that get shared a lot so be mindful of that when you and I think that's just good life advice like take a breath and be like why why am I feeling this way and then do it your due diligence before you like share and you know send it to all your whatsapp family group chats So another one of your books is entitled Muslim Women Are Everything, and you highlight the amazing accomplishments of Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, America's first Muslim congresswoman. How did you feel seeing the picture that Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene posted featuring an assault rifle? Oh, how did I feel? I'm talking about emotionally triggering (laughs) words and visuals. Uh, How did I feel? You know, there's like this thing that happens a lot now where it's like shock, but not surprise. Yeah. Given what we know about this particular individual and given what we know about the acceptability of certain rhetoric and Islamophobia. So shock, not necessarily surprise, but horror, like, oh my, it's just awful. Where do you feel the line should be drawn between free speech and accountability? There's a line, clearly, it's a very contextual line. And again, what worries me is who is at the table when it comes to making that decision about, no, we are an academic institution, but the voices and perspectives and lived experiences of the people at the table who get to say, we're okay with this, we are not okay, this person will face these consequences or this person will face none, it's really important to me that those people and their experiences really reflect the world. Otherwise, you end up with decisions, I think, that just perpetuate systems of oppression. So I'm a scientist and I'm a journalist and I don't want to see people muzzled. However, I want there to be really open and honest discussion about what happens when people in positions of power, especially when people who have so much privilege are using that privilege and that platform to say things that can have a very real and significantly negative impact on the lives and bodies of millions of people. Yeah. Where the line is, I think it's definitely drawn where you have a picture of an assault rifle as a U.S. congressperson targeting your colleagues. So what worries you most about where we are with the pandemic? Honestly, a variance concern me and the speed at which variants are evolving. Not that that's surprising given what we know about viruses and especially RNA viruses. The fact that we've seen some vaccine use being halted in South Africa because the dominant variant there is impacting the efficacy or the real world effectiveness of particular vaccines. So that really worries me, especially because in the US we've turned a corner, thankfully, after December and early Jan, we're seeing a really, really big decrease in cases and hospitalizations. I have to say though, a big decrease from a really, really high peak, right? So it's still high, but that can make you feel like, okay, we've got this, numbers are going down, we're seeing vaccines rolled out. I think, what are we at? Like 1.3 million Americans 
Americans being vaccinated roughly a day, kind of on average, you know, going towards what the president has said in terms of a 1.5 million person target per day. And then I also have this feeling of dread, like what if? Also, I think because we do probably have more variants in the US than we know because we're just doing hardly enough genome sequencing. So that's something that concerns me at the moment. Of course, I studied the spread of health misinformation and disinformation. That's always on my mind. It's been on my mind for years before the pandemic. I'm glad it's something that's being considered and understood as a public health threat, finally. But in just very real human terms right now, I'm very concerned about variants. Yeah, I'm looking forward to a day when we have systems that actually provide context from testing, tracing, and vaccination so we understand them a lot better. Yeah. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. Take care. When did truth become so subjective? How did truth become so intangible now that it literally slips through our fingers like water? Where do we draw the line between free speech and accountability for propounding blatant falsehoods or deliberately malicious information, especially when it's to the detriment of our nation and its people? How do we hold each other accountable when false information is actually preferred by so many of us, especially when false information only serves to divide us more than we already are? You may not listen to Contact World Truth and Health to hear what I think, because we're so fortunate to have people like Dr. Seema Yasmin on our show. But I'm going to share with you what I think. If you're a politician that threatens your colleagues blatantly using a picture of an assault rifle, you should be criminally prosecuted for it. Not censored, not just taken off of committees. And know the phrase, I was allowed to believe things that weren't true, doesn't get you off the hook regarding your outlandish conspiracy theories. You're making a mockery of the United States, Marjorie Taylor Greene. If you're an attorney inciting the followers of your client by proclaiming, let's have trial by combat, you should be disbarred permanently from the practice of law in the United States jurisdictions. You are not free to deliberately and blatantly threaten our democracy or its institutions, Rudy Giuliani. And if you're an attorney advancing knowingly false pleadings in a court of law without probable cause, as was the case in dozens of instances related to the election all the way to the Supreme Court, you should be sanctioned severely. Factually and legally untenable claims threaten the legitimacy of our courts. They do not advance the right of free speech. They mock the intent of our forefathers. Attention Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey. Stop pretending your lack of policing has anything to do with your personal morals or Facebook's policy on free speech. You and your peers, who literally influence the global population every day, should think about how you can come together and inspire us the way you've allowed your platforms to divide us for the pure sake of profit. Congratulations on what you've built, but we're now pawns at your mercy. Please help us as a society before misinformation spread on your platforms consumes us. Taking away the insider-in-chief's pedestal of misinformation was a step in the right direction, but our planet and its people are suffering. Now, if you are spreading misinformation online about COVID-19 because your friends published a new meme, please take a moment to educate yourself. If you don't believe in what is happening, go to a hospital and talk to the people who directly suffer from your ignorance. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening to Contact Truth and Health. We'll see you next time.
Listen to Contact World, the podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. 